Welcome to the Tech and Main Presents Podcast with your host, Sean St. Hill. Sean is the CEO of Tech and Main, a technology consulting firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen in as thought leaders share their tips and insights about what's going on in the world of technology. And now, here's your host, Sean St. Hill. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking for a second time with Grant Elliott. Grant is the chairman and CEO at Astendio, a cybersecurity company based in Arlington, Virginia. We'll let Grant tell you the rest of the story. But first, Grant, welcome back to the Tech and Main Presents podcast. Uh, it's great to be back again, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're you're welcome, my friend. You're welcome. So nice we had to do it twice. <laughs> and so with that, Grant, for those that may not have heard your story the first time around, why don't you share a little bit of your background? Sure. And so again, as I said the first time around, my accent is, is not your typical American accent. Uh, I'm originally from Scotland. I moved away from Scotland in my early 20s, lived in a few places in the UK. And I've really been in the US for 20 or so years. My, what brought me over here, I was in telecoms. So I worked for BT originally. They had a joint venture with originally MCI. Uh, some of the older listeners might remember. And that was then scuppered by the kind of WorldCom kind of MCI merger. So AT&T stepped in. Uh, and concept became like a joint venture between BT and AT&T. That all happened really around about 2000. And, you know, again, um, that was around the dot-com bubble burst. And so a lot of these kind of big uh, mergers started to fall apart. I stayed in AT&T for a few years and then left them to go and um, join a digital health company uh, where I spent about eight years as the chief operations officer and chief information security officer, um, which was a great experience and um, got to... Uh, build digital solutions in places like East Africa, South America, Indonesia. Again, just fantastic opportunity to travel to some parts of the world I've never been to before. Um, but once that experience kind of came to its natural end, um, it seemed to me as, as kind of building the kind of, the, the security aspect of that, that role, uh, there was a gap in the market for some sort of SaaS platform. My, that company was a SaaS company even before SaaS was really kind of developed as the concept. So uh, the idea of developing a cloud-based solution that could help organizations facilitate the, the audit process, facilitate their security and risk management process, seemed to have some appeal. And, and that's when Estendio uh, was conceived about eight years ago. Um, with this just simple idea, how do we make uh, security and risk management affordable and available to um, all organizations? Okay, great. Well, Grant, thanks for sharing that background with us. So you and I actually first spoke back at the beginning of the year in January. What have you been up to since then? Well, it just it never stops, does it? So obviously, the last 18 months for everyone's been a very interesting time. Uh, I think when we spoke at the beginning of the year, we we're obviously getting hopeful of a kind of vaccination program. And I think maybe even at the beginning of the year, we we're hopeful that by this point, we'd be a little bit back to normal. And various factors, including a Delta variant, have kind of uh, probably slowed that down a little bit. Um, but from a professional perspective, it's not probably made a huge difference for us. I think I mentioned the last time we spoke that we'd already moved to kind of virtual environment. We've continued to maintain that. We've we've issued a kind of core policy within our organization that we will not. Uh, we don't see any time soon, if ever, that we will return to a kind of physical uh, office location. We still have an office and we'll use it as a kind of central point for people flying in and out. But we've hired so many people in the last uh, 18 months. And, you know, I think we're up to 12 different states in the U.S. where we have employees. Oh, wow. You know, we can just get used to embrace this kind of virtual world. I think that um, and that's out of the bottle. I don't think anyone's put it back in. I always kind of chuckle a little bit to myself when I hear companies saying that they're going to mandate return to work because, I mean, the, the entire employee workforce changed substantially over the last 18 months and going doing as much hiring as we're doing right now and realizing how challenging it is to to, to find good resources to join the company and, and the kind of acceleration and increase in salary demands that we're seeing it's just going to be too easy for people to choose not to go back and if their employer doesn't give them a kind of virtual or, or stay-at-home option then they're going to vote with their feet and move to another organization and so uh, so we, we've kind of just decided not to try and get down that route we're just going to try and stay virtual and and, and try and 
Uh, we were also incredibly lucky and another kind of, I think, almost a output of the pandemic has been that, you know, there was certainly almost a year of resources and capital built up where certainly from March onwards for a, a few months, a lot of uh, VCs were keeping the powder dry. And I think you started to see that start to tip over from the beginning of the year. We were clearly beneficiaries of that. Uh, we were able to close a Series A. I think we formally closed at the end of April, which again is something we've been planning um, prior to COVID, um, but we had to put in hold and I resumed again at the end of last year. And so it was it was satisfying to get that done uh, just at the end of uh, our beginning of second quarter. And obviously that's, you know, big impact and big focus. What we're trying to do now is, you know, basically execute the plan and the vision we've outlined as part of that, um, uh, part of that process. And means hiring more people, which is not my favourite thing to do. I mean, I love having new people come and work in organisations, but the process is not um, the best. And so we're continuing to grow from that perspective as well. Okay, Grant. So one, congratulations on the the Series A round of funding. And I want to stay on that for just a moment. So obviously, I mean, that's a huge milestone in the life of any company, Um, you know, and certainly to your earlier point, having the typical dog and pony show, so to speak, where, you know, you're going out and pitching. The fact that, you know, you were still able to close that during the pandemic and do it in a virtual world, I think is all the more magnificent. But having secured that round of funding, do you remember the first thing you did once you found out that you had closed it? Well, I think it's interesting because I've been asked that question or people talk about that a lot. And and this kind of comes down to the process. I mean, you know, first of all, just commenting on raising money during a uh, pandemic. I mean, even to this day, I'm still not personally the lead investors uh, or stage venture partners around. Um, and we, we obviously talk every day or every other day. We're on a, a kind of Zoom conference call. So it feels like I've met them. But, you know, there's not been an in-person meeting yet, which in itself is quite strange. And, and I'm sure we'll rectify that at some point. A couple of things. One, I've never been a huge person to celebrate raising money as an achievement because it's a hard thing to do. But, you know, I think there's a little bit too much focus on companies that raise money because, you know, that in itself is, it should only be a stepping stone to building an effective business. And so, you know, we deliberately waited longer than maybe most to go out and, and raise our Series A. We wanted to build a sustainable business. We were able to get to the point where we had a significant revenue to, to fund the business. And we had a choice whether or not we wanted to raise money or not. And we actually chose to raise money, not because we didn't believe we could build a sustainable business based on the momentum we had. We chose to because we realized that the market still was heating up and we were seeing a lot of incredible well-financed competition coming in uh, with kind of West Coast money. And again, you know, taking advantage of the money I mentioned earlier on. And what they were doing with that money was spending a huge amount of money in sales and marketing, right? And so we knew we had the best product. We've been building this product for the last seven years. And so we knew we had an incredibly substantive product, not only the breadth of this, but we weren't competing effectively in the kind of the marketing side of things. And you know, even the kind of UI in the front end of our platform was a little bit more utilitarian than maybe some of the new competition coming in. And it's amazing how much successful you can be with a glitzy front end and a, a fast-talking salesperson and how effective sometimes um, that can be for some people. So we knew we had to raise money to try and build uh, an effective you know, uh, marketing message. Another thing as well is we've never really had a sales team, right? We had one salesperson who kind of led the kind of BD function. And so we were at that point where we had to replicate that. But again, um, Peter Thiel says, I think in his book, Zero to One, I'd rather have a, a, an A sales team and a B product than an A product and a B sales team, right? Uh, we know we've got an A product, uh, but we knew we had to build out the kind of wraparound to go on. So, so that was really kind of why we decided to raise the Series A. In terms of your specific question of what did I do, the problem is there's not really a moment, right? And so, I mean, if I was going to say one thing, it would probably be to exhale a sigh of relief because there's so many components. I've joked with our investors around every call we seem to have. Is, is this a gate? Is this another gate? Or, yeah, are we through all the gates? You go through various different conversations, different stages from your initial conversation to them. And you're not talking to, you're talking to multiple investors at this point. And so you're, you're pitching and then, you know, you get interest and then you're setting up a data room and then they're doing an initial due diligence on that, all this sort of stuff. And then you start, they indicate that maybe want to move to term sheet with you, but then you've got a whole negotiation around the term sheet. You eventually finalize a term sheet. And each time every conversation you have, 
should basically end the whole discussion, right? Whether or not something happens externally or you disagree on something, there's, there's all sorts of different reasons. And, you know, hopefully you're running a parallel process. You're not feeling like you only have one um, uh, one element that you're, you're focusing on. And we were lucky we were kind of working with two different um, uh, VCs at a more mature stage as well. And so the, even when you sign the term sheet, which, you know, yeah, yeah, I think when you watch this in television programs, everyone seems to kind of celebrate the moment they get a napkin agreed with an investor. But, you know, even once you sign the term sheet, then you're going through, we went through about two months of, you know, incredibly detailed due diligence, right? Where they're looking at every aspect of your technology, your security, they're talking to customers, personal references, and they're talking to your staff, right? And so again, there's this kind of two months, and, and this is all happening during COVID, right? So you can imagine that they're themselves even more looking to dig deeper because they're not having the face-to-face interaction as well. So it's a much more kind of detailed process. And, and I always remember the last day when we're the, literally the day that we were scared to close. Now, we've, we've done this for two months. We've had lawyers going back and forth in the final papers. We've been negotiating this point, that point. And there's just so much to be, to be, to be defined on the, the, the kind of minor points to the detail. And then on the literally the morning that we were supposed to be having the close call, my sole salesperson resigned. <laughs> and so... Oh. I, and 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 I'm oh, like, I'm on the phone with them and I'm saying to him, look, you're our only sales guy. What you know? And look, I, he'd been he's a he's a personal friend of mine. He'd been with us for four and a half years. An opportunity came up that you know he felt he can uh, turn down, and uh, you know I was completely happy for him. Other than that, he chose to do it that day, right? And, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, this is a disclosable event, don't you? I have now basically go back and basically say, hey, based on what we've determined, luckily, I mean, we built up a pretty transparent relationship with the investment group and the people we're working with. So I was able to submit that. And, and, and in the end, it wasn't a problem. They just wanted to know how we were going to address it. We already had someone else coming in and you know, we had plans to recruit. We have what, uh, four or five uh, sales uh, people within our organization right now. But it was it's so, so even getting through that process and eventually, so so when, when the signatures were all done and the emails came back, by that point, I really didn't have energy to do anything else other than just basically just sit back and be relieved that it was actually done. Right. Any part of that then is, well, well, now that you've done that, now you've got to go and collect the money because, again, just the, the deal's fine. So now you're chasing up to make sure payments and wires are coming through and so, yeah, so it's, that's a probably longer answer than you were expecting, but never really is unfortunate a moment where you're sitting thinking, yes, you know, let's go and celebrate or what we're going to do. There's just this kind of general sense of relief, which is, well, thank you. So we've got that. Now we've got this whole much larger uh, business objectives that we have to go out and achieve now. And so you suddenly just you know, start focusing on that. Well, Grant, first, thank you for taking us through that. For those that listen to the podcast, you know that the tech and the story run together. No one is more important than the other. So what you've what you've done is given us behind the scenes, a behind the scenes look. And I appreciate you doing that. Right. Because one, not many people know the behind the scenes details of closing a series A round of funding. Right. If you get the Atlanta Business Journal or the Business Journal in your hometown, all you see is the headline and, you know, the smiling people and, you know, the thumbs up and, you know, everyone's happy. But Grant, what you did was a tremendous favor by taking us through, here's, here's the announcement and here's the, you know, the caption, but here's all the stuff that goes on behind it. Yeah, no, and just to kind of add to that, because I think this is kind of quite interesting. It also took us a while to actually get around to issuing our press release on this. So I think we, we closed the round at the end of April, but again, we probably didn't actually, uh, I can't remember exactly when, it was either end of May or beginning of June where we actually issued the press release. So that was quite a funny moment as well because you're kind of going on moving forward and building the business and, you know, you've kind of moved on from this, this, this kind of quite significant event. And then the press release drops and suddenly you get all these congratulations coming in and everyone's <laughs> sort of, well, well done. And then, of course, a whole influx of vendors now who want to basically do business with you. And so and look, I'm not trying to um, uh, uh, dilute the value. Like I, I read some statistics that basically says that Series A round is by far the hardest venture round for any organization to raise. It's the first institutional round. It's the first time an organization has really gone through a level of you know, institutional scrutiny. 
And so lots of these deals fall down because, you know, I'm not saying it's easy to raise angel funding, but angel funding has got a, a lower bar in terms of if you if you have a personality, if you've character, if you have a half decent business idea, a lot of the time you can persuade angel investors to kind of you know, put money into your organization. Uh, that's certainly a lot easier than uh, but when you go through the VC round, it's the first time, as I mentioned, the two months we went through, and I've got to give real credit to uh, uh, the folks over at Sage. I mean, to me, they did a fantastic job and the level of detail they went into looking at us. I mean, they made us a better organization, right, by the work that they put into like, making sure that we had provided. And and, and I, we were a pretty well-organized organization. We, we'd gone through some many venture funds before, like with like Senti Gap and with the kind of Blue Ventures. We weren't complete angel groups. They kind of had done due diligence on us before. So we weren't start from from completely from scratch but you know going through that process you know was, was really actually quite you know in the end a kind of a, a cleansing process for us as well uh, and, and you've got to give credit so that just kind of shows how hard it is i'm not saying a series b and, and we will look and start working towards a series b and there's challenges obviously with uh, with every venture round because you've got to hit certain growth metrics but at least when you get through a Series B, they know that you know, you've got an established company. You've kind of gone through that kind of due diligence already. And so for the most part, they're kind of really looking to see how you hit the kind of growth metrics that you're looking for um, rather than that kind of first stage. So it, it's a big achievement, but it was quite disconnected. The, the press release goes out in June. All the kind of, kind of media attention comes to you at that period of time, which for me was like six weeks after we'd actually done it. So it was kind of quite, quite novel to experience that. Oh, well, again, Grant, thank you for sharing that with us. You know, I, I appreciate that. So this is actually a, a nice segue into this next question that I wanted to ask. So you are in the process of relaunching Astendio as a mission corporation. So tell us what led you to do that and what are you looking to accomplish? Sure. So let me just ask, so if anyone has listened to the last podcast is on uh, I believe I spent a lot of time talking about being a value-driven company and, and why it was important that for me as I kind of founder as an entrepreneur to build a company that operated in a way that I could feel proud that we were, you know, being a good community partner, that we were uh, being very good and caring to our employees and that, you know, we would be good stewards of our customers' services. And so that was a kind of big part of uh, launching the company. During the process, I can't remember who I was talking to a few months ago or earlier in the year, um, when I was kind of taking them through our values, taking through our mission and vision, and you know, really talking about the kind of pledge of 1%, we do the volunteer and we do it. They said to me, you know, you sound a lot like a mission corporation. Have you seen um, you know, what a mission corporation actually is, right? And, uh, and he introduced me to this book uh, called Mission Corporation. And I read it, and it was really interesting because it just seemed to be like a better way to structure and articulate what we've been trying to do in terms of the kind of piecemeal way I've been describing it before. And extensively for people who don't know what a mission corporation is, it's a book by, and I'm just kind of find the authors again, right? I should probably know this off the head, but it's a book by Michael Moore and Michael Carr. Okay. Um, and they, they really kind of go back into the, this concept that pure capitalism has lost its soul in the sense that when Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations, uh, as a kind of pure economic playbook, people forget the fact that he's actually a moral philosopher as well. And a lot of the papers he wrote back in the time was really about, you know, you know societal contribution and how we've evolved uh, with modern capitalism uh, that we're no longer in touch with our customers because we do commerce um, electronically and across the world. And so this sense of our customers keeping us honest. And then the other aspect they talk a lot about is that we also have kind of evolved into a a world where we previously thought we'd unlimited resources and now we know that we have a planet that has limited resources and we're kind of learning that every single day. And so it's not, they're not the first organization to talk about how we can become better stewards, but there, there is a concept called a B Corp. Uh, and a B Corp for the most part is a separate legal entity. A mission corp is more a philosophy than a legal entity. A B Corp, but most B Corps, what they do is they basically set their, their mission as an organization. And as they grow their organization, they want to also do good, right? So they might put money aside, like we did with Pledge 1%. And they will try and do good through that process, right? And they're committed to try and do this. What a mission corporation says is, actually, your sole purpose for being needs to be you're doing good, right? How you do things and what you're doing has to be the core mission itself. 
So we really kind of sat back to that and started thinking about, okay, so what are we doing, right? What If we truly achieve our aim as an organization, are we making the world a better place, right? And, and actually the answer to that we believe was yes, right? If we can genuinely reduce risk and improve security for all, are people going to feel safer? In a world where people are worried about threats, we're worried about ransomware, we're worried about phishing, we're worried about all sorts of cyber attacks. If we can help people by reducing their risk, and making them more secure. Are we doing good to the economy, to, to society? And, and we believe we are, and, and, and that kind of broader mission could have to ride back. So the question then becomes, okay, so if we believe that what we're trying to do is in line with the mission, well, you know, based on the book, what are we actually trying to do? And, and, and so the Mission Corporation basically says there's seven core declarations for you know how you run a mission corporation. And we kind of looked at those seven declarations that, you know, that maps so well to um, what we were actually talking about doing, right? You know, we, we basically obviously have the public come out and say that we're a mission corp and that we're, 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 we're and our intention is to, to kind of do good. Um, we want to make sure that our employees are basically going to be war- rewarded for that process. So we basically make sure that they have an effective, and we've always been very generous because we've, again, finishing the conversation about raising money, right? If you raise money too early and your cap table is too much, too full of investor stock, you don't have as much room in your table for your employee stock options. And so we've always been able, because we raise money late, been able to be more generous from an employee stock perspective. So we, we meet that. They have a 3 to one program, 3% volunteering hours, uh, 2% of, of profit and uh, 1% of, uh, of, of stock. We were already doing pledge 1%. We already gave all of our employees two days volunteering. So we've now actually extended that to now all employees get six days a year of free volunteering time. Um, we don't, obviously, because we're a venture-funded organization, we're not making a profit or a gross margin right now. So we've made the commitment we will allocate 1% of our revenue as we grow as an organization, again, to social giving, Right. Uh, and then we've, again, got commitment from the board. And this has been the sad thing for me. The board, even the new board, has endorsed all of these, these components. We've allocated 1% or in the process of allocating 1% of our stock legally to kind of a foundational element that allows us to basically ensure that, that uh, on whatever exit we eventually achieve, will continue to go and invest in going good. And there's some other things as well, like, you know, I have to make personal commitments. I'm not going to pay myself too much over the lowest employee um, we need to make sure that we're investing our people, training our people. We need to make sure we're in, in, investing and focus on diversity and inclusion, not just at the core elements of the business, but at the leadership level as well. So if anyone wants to go and look at uh, the kind of seven declarations, they can do that. But when this person was describing all this to me, it just, again, really seemed like a better way to define and frame what we were all about as an organization before we even knew that the, such, the mission corporate actually existed. So I made a decision, you know, again, and, and actually this was the decision I made at the beginning of the year. And actually, again, credit to my investors as they were coming in, as part of the investment process, I made it clear to them, look, we are, this is the type of organization we are. This is the type of organization you're investing in. You're not going to be a good investor. We're not going to be good partners if you don't believe these things too. Uh, and I credit again to them. They were completely on board, completely on board with, you know, and, and I think actually, if I'm being honest, it made them even more interested in investing in us rather than less. I think they saw the value of this as well. So again, it was great to take this through the investment process. It was again, great to basically give this presentation to the board and get strong endorsement uh, of, of our process. And then the great thing is we have an employee base that really appreciate being part of something that's bigger than themselves, something bigger than the organization. And, and I think for me, it's, a, it's just a great way of framing something that I've believed for a long period of time. And now we have a kind of formal construct that we can basically present to you know ourselves and the outside world about who we are as an organization. Man, Grant, I'm over here. Well, I can't jump up and down because I, I need to stay seated um, <laughs> doing this. But the, the thing that I'm, um, I'm jumping up and down on the inside, because there's something that you said that just went off like a bomb on the inside of me. You were already doing the things that a mission corp formally declares, right? Before you even knew that a mission corp existed, right? So so you had already from day one laid the groundwork for being this amazing organization. But then the other thing, your VC partner, you basically said, hey, there needs to be deep alignment between the two organizations so that as we're doing what we already have been doing, but as we formalize it, you need to have these, these values and you need to see things the way we do as well. Man, that's good stuff, Grant Elliott. 
Well, and I'm not going to lie, right? There, there was definitely a degree of anxiety when I knew that I was going to bring that up with investing. You know, again, you've got an investor who's basically, you know, already signaling that they want to invest in you. And, you know, I know that at some point I'm going to have to bring this conversation up. And you're always worried that, you know, that you're going to bring this conversation up. And, you know, the challenge when I've talked to this with some people, you know, and again, this is the important thing is that, you know, I make clear when I give this presentation, it's really important to understand that being a mission corp is still being very capitalistic, right? It's not anti-capital. It's not being a not-for-profit. It's not being a kind of you know, goody-two-shoe organization. It's about aligning what you do, right? And if you're truly successful at what you do, which is your mission, you're going to be successful on multiple fronts. And so it was important for me to impress, again, to the investors that, look, you know, this doesn't mean to say we're not going to try and grow as fast as we can. This doesn't mean to say that we don't have great aspirations for what this organization and company can become, but, you know, I would be lying if I, I said there wasn't an element in me that was a little bit, you know, concerned that I'd maybe make that presentation and, and the reaction would be, uh, well, actually, no, no, we're, we're just here to make money and, you know, maybe it's not a fit. Um, but luckily, again, for me, um, uh, you know, again, the folks at his age were, I mean, they were you know, welcoming of the message and, and completely embraced it. And, and really, as I said, I think it actually created a stronger relationship between us rather than the opposite, which I'm, you know, obviously grateful and, and just, you know, really happy to have them as partners. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And so Grant, again, um, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but man, thank you for sharing everything that you did with the Series A round of funding. Thank you for sharing process behind, you know, being a mission corporation. Well, I would encourage other organizations to look at it. I think we can all, uh, be better to your point the fact that we were doing this is really important for 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 my perspective for this to be authentic there's lots of organizations out there that have kind of value statements and and you know have their values on their wall and stuff like that and you know i'm aware we just hired um a kind of new uh kind of hr director partly because we want to make sure you know if we're going to implement this effectively it has to be done in a kind of a, a consistent manner as well but every organization that's out there today again this is not a this is not a legal change. This is a this is a perspective and it's a kind of outlook change. So every single organization out there today can do this. And I'd encourage them to do this because again, you know, we live in a world, we share a world. It's really important that, you know, people get up and enjoy going to work and that, that you're contributing to something that's positive and bigger than yourself. And uh, again, that should never take away from the aspiration to build a great and successful company. You know, what a mission corporation says is you can do both exactly at the same time. That's great. All right. So Grant, I know that Astendio is big on education, making sure that their clients and the ecosystem at large is aware and equipped for what's going on, you know, from a security, from a risk management standpoint, et cetera. Um, you guys recently came out with a white paper. What I want to do is just ask you a little bit, what is data-driven risk management and how does Astendio help CISOs with that? Sure. So as we've evolved as an organization, as I mentioned before, the original vision was to build a kind of operational platform that helped organizations build an effective security and risk management platform. And, and the, in the early days, what that involved is building a kind of basic building blocks for, you know, document management, policy management, training, training management, you know, asset management, uh, you know, task and, and, and activity management. And so we, we've spent many years building that platform, but fundamentally, what we realize that most organizations find is difficult is knowing what to do, right? You'll be, I'd be amazed at many things I've speak to an organization because if you think about what, if you try and strip down the essential elements, what we're trying to do, we're trying to protect our data, right? And I think I talked a little bit last time about the fact that that's never been easier. So it's never been uh, uh, more difficult than it is actually right now because our data is everywhere, right? We live in a cloud-based world. And there's no, the concept of data ownership seems to evolve into more kind of um, the concept of rights of use rather than ownership, because how can you own something that's replicated in multiple places? And so when I ask the CEO of an organization or the, 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 the leads, uh, security person organization, do you really truly know where your data is? Oftentimes they'll, they'll, they'll answer with the affirmative, but when you actually challenge them about, most often they're, not, they're thinking about just the production data, maybe it's an AWS or it's an Azure or they've got a physical server somewhere. But when you start asking them to inventory all the different data sources they have, right? everything from their production data to their marketing data to their sales data to their finance data to the communications data like Gmail or, or Slack or whatever, right? you start to realize that your average organization is filling like 170 to 180 
data repositories, right, where they literally have data, and, and a lot of that data can, can be replicated, right? They might have the same data in Slack that they have in uh, email because they've been uh, using different communication channels or they're communicating or they're copying stuff into their, their, their CRM platform as well. If you're going to protect your data, you need to understand where it is, you need to understand who's access to it, and you need to understand what is the risk of that data being reached. So again, the next step then is you have to start understanding the criticality of the different data sources you have, because clearly the information you maintain within your website clearly may be not as sensitive as the information you have in your production application. Increasingly, email, more and more people have sensitive data in the email or the Slack environment, and a lot of these organizations are companies. So the concept of risk management started to watch on the assumption that when you ask people if they're doing risk management and you actually truly find out what if they understand what true risk management actually is, I, see, I find a lot of the time people confuse risk management with risk assessments, uh, where they basically do a gap assessment across the platforms. But to do true risk management, you have to have literally tens of thousands of data points to do it effectively. If you just take a scenario set, you've got just say 100 data sources, you have maybe a thousand employees, you maybe have um, uh, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different processes and procedures. When you actually create those anywhere between 50 and 100 risk templates, depending what, what framework you actually use, and you apply them to all these different elements, you very quickly come through to the fact that you might have to have you know, 50, 60, 70, 100,000 risks that you're managing in any one time. Today, the key mechanism that people use this is a risk register, which is a two-dimensional spreadsheet. You just can't manage 50 to 60,000 data elements in a spreadsheet. Right? I mean, it's just not as a threat. So whenever I talk to people who they're using, and, and even if you go to most, most risk management training mechanisms that you go, they're going to they're point to having a risk register. And so when I talk about data-driven uh, risk management, you have to have a mechanism in place where you can track data at the most granular level. So you can basically have a data-driven conversation based on how your data is evolving over the course of time in order to baseline risk and baseline the progression of risk. And that's not easy to do right, when you talk about that web demo. We talked, I think, a little bit last time about the fact that too often uh, the conversation that happens between the CEO or the executive of an organization and the security team is much more of it, okay, our IT budget is X, so that I'm going to give you 5% more security. That's really the wrong way for the conversation to be happening. There's a reason why whenever there's a major data breach, more often than not, it's the CISO that gets fired. Because the CISO is basically going in and taking their allocation of security budget, investing in whatever security tools, without truly understanding if they're filling the right holes within the organization because they haven't been effective this management. And also, they've taken responsibility by accepting their budget. That's what they're going to do because the executive thinks that they've just basically devolved that responsibility. What really with a database risk management, uh, risk management approach needs, you have to have an informed conversation with your executive team where you have to go to determine and show them, you know, you know at a very granular level, um, this is what a risk profile looks like today. This is where a risk profile started. This is what it looks like today. And this is what a risk profile needs to be in order for us to, to feel comfortable in terms of the security. And you need to get your executive team to buy into that target risk profile because that target risk profile is not a zero risk profile. That target risk profile is we only have so much money to spend. Uh, we need to allocate how much we're going to spend in order to get the target risk profile to where it needs to be. Now, you're now having a conversation with your executive team about, okay, if our risk profile is too high and that's not an acceptable risk for you, you need to give me more tools and resources to get that risk profile lower. If the executive team isn't prepared to do that, then they're accepting the risk, right? They understand, and that's fine, because again, that's part of what a leadership is supposed to do. But then they're accepting the risk. So if something goes wrong within that risk profile, the CISO, to some degree, can basically say, look, we accepted this together. This was a data-based approach that we took to understanding a risk. And it's then the executive team is partially responsible or is as much responsible as happening. And so that's what I mean. And so, so what we've done is we've built out within our platform the capability, like we on top of the, the core elements, the ability to basically track and manage all the different risk elements at a large scale data level so that you can really start having empirical information that allows you to assess risk across your processes, across your assets, across your people, across your departments, across your facilities, across your territories, right? You can literally break down what types of risks you're experiencing within each of those different components. And you can then have that 
conversation at either the, the very high level within an organization and then the ability to kind of drill down uh, uh, beyond that point and really you know have that kind of data-centric conversation with the executive management team. So Grant, thank you so much for sharing that answer on data-driven risk management. Now, you said some really great things, but I wanted to pull out just a few things. One is where you talked about getting the target risk profile or getting to the target risk profile doesn't mean zero risk, right? I think that's, I think that's really important. It, it's not that you're eliminating risk. It's that you're getting it to an acceptable level, right? And then you also mentioned that risk management is not the same as a risk assessment. So given, given those couple of things, what, and really in particular, the, the risk management not being the same as a risk assessment. Um, could you elaborate on that a little? Sure. I mean, look, first of all, it's important that we understand that we all live with risk in our lives uh, every day. Um, so the whole concept of risk management is you know, nothing new uh, when you, it's just we're applying it to our business circumstance. So yeah, every time we walk out the house, right? Um, we accept as an element of risk, you know, whether it's the risk of being struck by lightning or, or being, being hit, hit by an automobile or, you know, or being mugged or robbed or whatever. Um, and, and we generally have accepted that that's a, a kind of risk that we kind of put back in the back of our mind because when we actually think about the concept of what a risk actually is, the kind of classic definition is there's the threat and then what is the impact of the threat? And so, you know, we walk outside and, you know, the threat is that, you know, we are uh, incapacitated by a weather event or, or some physical interaction we have with someone. And then what is the impact of that? Well, clearly, uh, the impact of a lightning strike can be quite significant. Um, impact of some sort of attack can, can be significant. So when you put those two things together, you can come up with like a general kind of risk score in your own mind when you do this all the time. But because for the most part, for most of us, uh, the likelihood of uh, that actual uh, threat occurring is pretty low. Um, we're kind of doing this kind of mini assessment all the time that suggests that, well, you know, the likelihood is low, even though the impact is high. Therefore, for me, the level of risk is pretty low. So I'm still going to make the decision to go outside. So every single time we, can, uh, we go outside, we make that assessment, whether we're consciously thinking about it at all. Um, and businesses do this on an ongoing basis, right? Businesses will go through a process and a structured process of understanding across their, their threat landscape what risks do we think we, we have in any given moment in time. And, and that's the, the concept of a risk assessment. I'm, I'm kind of making that assessment at a point in time and based on the circumstances at that moment in time. Uh, but threats are evolving, right? And, and risk management is an evolving process. So when we think about the difference between a risk assessment, which is a kind of point in time uh, a judgment versus risk management, which is a proactive process to take those assessments and actually plan for them and, 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 and proactively mitigate for them, right? When I talked about in my previous answer, this concept of defining uh, what is a risk target should be and that's more than just conducting a risk assessment and accepting that. I don't, you know, when I walk out the, the, the house, you do a kind of basic assessment, which we do fleetingly, and then think, well, what does the risk have to be uh, tomorrow or the next day? I just kind of do that, that basic assessment. So businesses um, oftentimes you'll find will do risk assessments on a regular basis. They'll maintain, you know, the, the kind of risk register, they'll maintain a list of risks, and they'll conduct that assessment. Um, and oftentimes they'll mistakenly assume that that's enough for them to constitute doing risk management. But as I kind of said previously, if they're not understanding how risk is evolving over time, how the threats are evolving over time, how the impact is evolving over time, if they're not trying to project forward to what is an acceptable level of risk, it's very difficult for them to, to basically manage that risk. Right? Again, when we go outside in the training, uh, we do a quicker risk assessment, you know, okay, the threat is the rain, the impact is I get wet. So I can now mitigate that by taking an umbrella, right? I take an umbrella and, you know, I'm still walking in the rain, but I'm walking with an umbrella, which is mitigated the impact. It's not changed the likelihood of the rain because the rain is still happening, but it's reducing the impact of the rain because it's protecting me. Therefore, I reduce my risk of actually getting wet. 
And so, so what do I do in order to, 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 to preempt that? I buy an umbrella, right? I don't buy an umbrella the moment I walk outside, right? I buy an umbrella in advance because I've projected the fact that it's likely to rain where I live and I understand the impact of rain. So I, in advance, I buy appropriate clothing and in advance, I buy an umbrella. And now I have mitigation capabilities in place that allow me to, again, comfortably decide whether I want to go out in the rain. We have to do that as a business across a whole host of attributes, a whole host of, of elements within the business. And the way that we then basically say that, you know, I'm willing to accept that I may get a little bit damp when I go out in the rain because I've mitigated it to an acceptable level by having an umbrella and wearing waterproof clothing. Uh, it still allows me to accept that risk as an organisation. And so that's the difference between a risk assessment. A risk assessment is walking out and thinking, hey, it's raining outside, I'm going to get wet. Um, but risk management is about understanding that that evolves and changes over time and projecting what it's going to, when it's going to happen in the future, likely, the likelihood it's going to happen in the future, and then building mitigation capabilities or, or plans in place uh, that allow me to bring the, the, the risk of getting wet down to an acceptable level that is an organisation comfortable Okay. So... Here again, Grant, you're you're saying so many good things and there's there's so much to pull out. But the thing that struck me was using the example of having an umbrella, right? And being proactive. You don't wait until it's raining to go and get the umbrella. You realize, you know, some period of time in advance, oh, you know, it's likely to rain this week. I don't have an umbrella. So let me, as you said, mitigate the rain by going out and getting an umbrella. So why does it seem then that so many of the the breaches and data incidents that we hear of in the news. We don't have to name any names, but, you know, it, it seems to be pretty standard that, oh, such and such has happened. You know, we're, we're now going to go out and hire Mandiant or Deloitte or some large entity to help us fix what has happened. It, it seems really reactive. Would you agree or, or what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think the challenge is that the approach that we take is, is not risk-based um, because it, we, we find it difficult, as I mentioned earlier, to quantify the number of potential threats that we're faced with across the, you know, the volume of, of artifacts and assets we have, right? You know, again, as I call it in the white paper, and, and as an organisation, when we think about how many people we have within the organisation, how many assets and data sources we have within an organisation, how many processes and procedures we have within an organisation. We have to understand that if a threat impacts those, and what's the likelihood of a threat impacting those, um, what is the impact to the business overall? And, and that process of discipline of, of actively going through all of those different scenarios is challenging. It's challenging for any organisation. As I mentioned earlier on, the secure control framework basically classifies, I think, 54 template risk types. And so if you were to apply those 54 template risk types, and that's just the ones that they've defined across all those different artifacts, that's how you get to this kind of thousands and thousands of kind of uh, risks within an organization. And so that is hard work for any organization to do, especially if they're trying to do it on a traditional two-dimensional spreadsheet, which seems to be the most common way that organizations try and do that. So organizations want to make shortcuts, right? And again, this comes down to the fundamental objective. What is the organization trying to do? Are they trying to be compliant and get a checklist to say, hey, you know, um, my security framework says I have to conduct uh, a, have a, a risk management program, so I'm going to do risk assessments to some basic element uh, and then check that off and say that I'm doing it when they're not? Or are they genuinely really trying to get to a risk-managed or kind of data-centric, data-driven risk-management process? If they are really truly intended in trying to get there, they have to go through the discipline of tracking and managing all those different risk elements and then use that as a way to understand for the budget, right? If we, we take um, another way to ensure you don't get wet is to buy a nice new car, right? And to have a car in your garage and never leave the car and never get out of the car, right? And that's absolutely great. It's a, it's a nice shiny object that any technologist would love to have a nice car, right? But that doesn't help you walk the dog, right? And so that car may solve certain situations, but if you have a, if you have a dog and you have to walk your dog, you're not going to walk your dog with the car, right? So it's about trying to understand what's the appropriate thing to do. And trust me, there's a lot more people coming to your organization trying to sell you cars than trying to sell you umbrellas, right? 
And so too many organizations I've seen get kind of sucked into this sexy technology about, uh, you know, we can solve everything through some form of technology when actually the reality is that technology are going to help you mitigate some of the risks that you've determined. They're, and again, they're, they're part of your mitigation strategy. But your mitigation strategy is designed and developed by going through the hard work of understanding what are all the different risks you're facing, prioritizing those risks uh, based on, again, the, the threat and the impact uh, that it's going to have on the organization, and then investing your spend on understanding what is the best way for me to you know, find ways to reduce either the impact of this happening to me or the likelihood that it's going to happen. Okay. Well, again... Thank you for allowing me to kind of go down those tangents and thanks for consistently, you know, giving those those solid answers. I, I do want to ask you, though, because earlier we talked about the M Corp, you know, the Mission Corporation and, you know, just the, the, the seven ideals of a Mission Corp, one of them being around giving and, and charity. And so I was just curious. What charities or organizations are you currently supporting or passionate about? Sure. I mean, I think there's lots of uh, things that, you know, personally I get passionate about. And then there's obviously as an organization, we want to try and make sure that everyone within the organization, you know, people have their own stories and people have their own experiences. And there's certain things that are, are more, you know, some of the things that we've been involved in recently, personally, uh, you know, a friend of mine I used to work with, uh, his son, passed away many, a few years ago and uh, through pediatric cancer. And so uh, as an organization, we spent a lot of time over the years um, sponsoring um, their foundation. Uh, they kind of do an annual walk and we participated in that walk and we've kind of sponsored as, a, as, as an organization that walk. Um, food insecurity, again, is a, another area we are very fortunate to live and for the most part in a community where there's a, a lot of wealth, a lot of affluence, but that hides, unfortunately, um, a lot of food insecurity, uh, even within our local area. We just um, uh, last weekend as an organization participated uh, with an organization called Food for Others that kind of provides uh, food for you know, again, families that you know, struggle to be able to kind of feed their, feed their families appropriately. Uh, we donated uh, as part of that, that process. And people can go to our website and they can see the kind of, uh, the kind of social media we did around that event as well. So uh, we try very hard to try and find uh, issues that we think are going to be close to the heart of our employees and find a way to kind of, you know, both give back, not just in terms of monetary, um, but by giving checks and donations. And, you know, we, I think, I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but we match all employee uh, charitable donations up to $1,000 as kind of part of our kind of benefits package as well. So that allows people to, to invest. But also, I think it's important, there only is so much money and no money helps, but, um, you know, investing in our time, right? Uh, because some of these things take a lot of time, right? So that's, you know, going in a fun walk or the work we're doing right now is collecting some uh, basic essentials for a lot of the Afghan uh, refugees that have just come into to, to the area here in Virginia. And so we've been kind of facilitating some of those things as well. So a whole variety of different things, lots of little things. Um, and to me, part of the process is about trying to be continually focused on doing something and having something on an ongoing basis um, that we can, you know, again, uh, there's so many causes and there's just not enough time. And I don't want to give the impression that we're spending, you know, 90% of our time, this is what we're doing. Uh, but I do think that for all of us as an organization, if we can set that standard and we can encourage that level of giving within the organization, then it just means people are spending a little bit more time thinking about it and doing a little bit more than maybe that otherwise would be doing. Here again, you've got me thinking of something that you said earlier, because the question that I just asked was, you know, around charity and organizations that you're passionate about or that you're contributing to. Um, it reminded me earlier in the program, you mentioned how raising money late allowed you to be generous with employees. So I'm thinking you were talking about raising money later in the evolution of your company, but it's just so interesting that generosity, it hits from different angles, being generous in the local community right, and helping out. But then there's also the ability because of when you raised funding, like you said, that allowed you to be generous with your employees as well. So I just, I, I think that's, that's great that it, you know, it comes in these, these different areas and these different waves. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's important to point out, I mean, we try to do this from 
you know, day one in the organization. Because again, I think I don't know that there's ever a point where, let's say, for example, uh, we're we're going to go and raise our Series B next year, or you know, whatever, however much money we raise uh, moving forward. I've, I've talked to other entrepreneurs sometimes and they're like, well, we're just not at the stage where we're able to do that. And, and I don't think there is a stage. I think it has to be something that becomes part of your philosophy from day one. And even if you're only, you know, look, very early on, some of the first things we did was we were able to give a platform away to organizations who find it difficult to pay for capital items. So, um, you know, uh, Arlington Free Clinic and uh, Arlington, uh, La Clinica de Publica, and uh, in, in Washington DC are both uh, free clinics that provide free uh, healthcare services to you know people that generally can't afford it. And you know people may may not be aware, but whilst they get lots of donations, most of those donations come a lot of the time with strings that have to be specifically linked to the, the delivery of care. So they actually find it quite happy, uh, quite quite hard to get contributions related to services like we provide. So as providing um, these services to um, to these organisations is actually seen as a kind of very valuable kind of gift that we're able to give. I mean, so much so, and I don't want to kind of over dramatise it, but uh, the gentlemen at La Clinica, when when we first, you know, they were kind of going out and doing a tender to get a kind of platform like ours, and when we said we'd be happy to actually not only provide the platform, but we'd be happy to provide it completely free of charge, you know, uh, uh, for for as long as they needed it. I mean, he actually cried on the phone. It was the most amazing thing. He initially sobbed on the phone at the, kind of, at the fact that they, were, that they had a solution here. And, you know, that was kind of quite an emotional reaction for me as well, because it kind of makes you kind of, you don't often get that kind of you know, really raw response as well. And so I think we, we've been able to do things like that um, very early on, as well as some of the kind of social giving. And so I think it's, it has to be kind of part of the ingrained within the kind of general kind of giving culture of the organization. Whether you have a lot of money or very little money at all, we can all give time. Uh, I know it's a valuable commodity, but there's always something we can do, even if it's not, you know, financially related. Oh, that's a great answer. So, yeah, I, I, I would have been very moved. I mean, I'm, I am moved with you sharing, you know, the gentleman's reaction as you told him that you were going to gift them the use of the platform. But again, it's these themes that keep coming up, Grant, and it's giving, it's being generous, it's being charitable, you know, it's proactive versus reactive, right? There's that saying by the hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, you know, he always skated to where the puck was going to be. He, he was always forward thinking. And that's the, that's the vibe that I'm getting from you, Grant, as we're talking through these different things, right? You're, you're not waiting for permission to be great, right? You're practicing that on a daily basis, right? You're, you're not waiting for permission to be kind and charitable and to be a humanitarian. That, that's a part of your DNA. And so you're, you're, you're walking that out day by day. Yeah, we, we can all do more. I mean, there, there's many people that do much more than I, I ever could do. So I would, you know, I wouldn't wait on that thing in the sense that um, I think we're doing, you know, we're trying to get back a lot about we can. Uh, we're trying to maintain an ethos to encourage other people to do the same. We're we're not a charity uh, or a charitable organisation, and and I'm sure that well, I know there are many people out there doing way more amazing things than we are doing. But in a little bit, hopefully, we are contributing a bit. And as I said, you know, the nice thing about um, giving the platform away free kind of goes back to this mission core kind of philosophy of. Of, you know, what you do is the good that you do. And we're really kind of trying to embrace that as well. So, yeah, of course, we are doing some of the other things as well, because I think that's kind of part of the kind of societal contract that we all should have. But we're also trying to double down and making sure that, again, you know, as, you know, when we talk about education around risk management, we talk about education around building more effective security. Again, going back to this constant you know, theme of our mission is how do we reduce the risk for others by improving security? Because if we can do that for everyone, then everyone sleeps a little bit easier each night. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that a lot. All right. So, Grant, let me ask you this. Where do you want to be five years from now? What do you want to be doing five years into the future? Yeah, I mean, hopefully uh, not doing what I'm doing right now as much as I enjoy it. I mean, but then if you'd asked me five years ago, I'd have probably said the same thing as well. The interesting thing about this journey specifically, maybe versus some of the other uh, roles that I've had is, it keeps changing, right? And so 
the job that I have today is very different from the job I had two years ago and, and the job I had two years before that. You know, if you even go back, you know, we, we founded Ascendium in 2013, and I think back to those early days, you know, you know what I was doing on a day-to-day basis, right, versus a couple of years later, et cetera. And so as I think about what I do just now, um, you know, and the role that I have right now, again, trying to almost kind of coach and mentor an organization, almost play a kind of quarterback role, is very different necessarily from a lot of the kind of co-faced uh, work that I was maybe doing even a couple of years ago as well. Uh, as we can evolve the organization, it's hard to predict where a standing is going to be specifically as a standalone entity, it's kind of part of a different organization. Uh, we're really not sure. And so um, if things go the way that I would hope the goal we will evolve and, and my role will be different somewhere, either as part of a standing or, or as not as the case may be. Um, I was very fortunate many, many years ago to take a, a one-year career break when I left AT&T. And ironically, the interesting thing I found about that career break was um, I will never not work. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of really uh, discombobulating to kind of get up every day and kind of think, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do today. And so after the first few months of getting all the projects around the house done and a couple of trips, it was kind of like, I really need to start thinking about doing something again. And so I have some ideas for uh, post-Estendio. You know, I I like the idea of kind of getting more connected back to Scotland, um, where I'm originally from, and try to kind of give back uh, more from that perspective, maybe taking advantage of some of the experience I've got, raising money, building a company, and trying to kind of deliver back into that ecosystem again. So there's a few ideas I have floating around. Um, But one thing is for sure, it's certainly not going to be what I'm doing right now at this moment, for sure. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. So, Grant, other than a member of your family, um, tell me about your role model. So, it's really interesting because, again, we always think about role models uh, two different ways. There's positive role models and there's negative role models. Now, I'm going to talk. I'm going to give an example of one of each. And, and the, the reason I can do that is because I think actually, in many ways, you learn more from negative role models than than you do. Uh, from positive ones. Uh, I used to work for this lady many years ago who was, I mean, incredibly inspirational um, in terms of her ability. I've never known anyone who could work a room uh, the way she did. I mean, you'd, you'd have a meeting of 15, 20 people and she'd literally walk in the room and she'd you know, shake hands with a, another hand on the back of your shoulder and she'd have something to say to every single person. And and, and it was no um, um, no accident she uh, she she, she uh, achieved the kind of height she did within a kind of large uh, corporate organization but the cost for people that worked for her uh, in that organization was, was significant and there was a kind of in my mind a kind of moral a moral lacking in terms of the kind of leadership element so there was a lot of style a lot of nash and leadership element and, and i'm sure she was very successful. I know she was successful up to a point, uh, but the, the cost within her organization, I think for me, wasn't worth it. Right. And and, and so I think I learned from that, that that lesson there that you know success at all costs is not worth it. Right. It's just you, know, you don't want to be the person that when you get there. And then I think the second person, and this has been back many, many years ago, because I mean there's lots of people work with who have always been inspiring, but I remember the very first time I and worked for someone who was younger than me, right? This happened kind of reasonably early in my career. I think I was in my late 20s. But what inspired me with this individual, and this individual is still a, a close personal friend today, is I was working in an environment um, where we were doing some really interesting things. Um, you know, we were building out you know, what is now known as extranets. This is back in the kind of early 90s before you know, the internet had really kind of blown up in the way it has. And that was kind of working in this concept of building an online ordering or e-commerce platform, again, through a lot of these, pla- these terms didn't really exist at the time. But working in an organization that I think, you know, BT at the time wasn't exactly progressive. And so there wasn't necessarily an appreciation, I don't think, within the organization, just the power and the impact of the work that I was doing. And I'm not even sure that I truly understood it either at that point, because I was just doing what I thought was and one of the, the, the people that worked tangentially to me, again, this kind of young individual, uh, was actually, you know, kept saying to me, look, the stuff you're doing is really, really incredible. The leadership here is just never going to appreciate the power of, you know, what you're doing. And that all sounds very, very nice because a lot of people, you know, sometimes say nice things. But what was impressive with this individual, he he basically came up to me one day, he says, look, I'm leaving to go and work in this new organization, this new joint venture. Uh, he says... I'm going to come back for you. He says, because you're wasted here. What you're doing here 
is, 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 is just groundbreaking and they just, they have no idea what you're doing. And again, it all sounds very nice and people are also, you know, but generally to his work within, I think, less than a year later, uh, literally. And it was, it was actually kind of ironic because it was just to the point where the work that I was doing was starting to be recognized. We had this huge big conference in France. I'd been able to, I had this kind of amazing experience. We were in this little vaudeville theater and I was introduced to flashing strobing lights coming on into this online demo uh, for, you know, like 200 people or whatever. Um, the huge, huge uh, stage production. And literally it was the week after that, he literally called me up and said to me, okay, uh, I want you to come and work for me at this new organization and gave me this really, really exciting international job that I had no idea or no even right to even think about. And I think the reason I can tell that story is because, you know, whenever you're in different uh, uh, stages of your career, people say a lot of different things, but it's what they do that really, really counts. And, you know, this individual who, you know, had faith in me, uh, rightly or wrongly, um, he he was patient with that faith and actually literally, you know, put his actions for his words in the Within a year later, he basically made a job for me within his new organisation and was able to kind of get me across there. So and that always stuck with me because, again, um, that was something he had to uh, actively do and, and, and make plans for. And um, I think that, you know, that kind of shows that, you know, you know, like the two two examples I've given you, one, a lot of flash and a lot of saying the right things but not necessarily doing them versus someone who, you know, there's real substance between what you did. You took the word right out of my mouth, Grant Elliott, substance. That last example was one of substance, right, where you could take his word to the proverbial bank. And obviously, you had to be worth your salt, right? You, you, you couldn't have been a bottom quartile performer and have someone extend that type of offer or that type of situation to you. So, you know, there's, there's two elements for those that are listening. One is be a person of substance, but also you, the individual, do your best every day. Be a standout. Be someone worthy of a strobe light entrance for a demo. I mean, that's that's not necessarily going to happen every time, but you know, have that caliber of work, have that body of work such that when the opportunity presents itself, whether it's, you know, a month later or a year later, that person will tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, come on over. I've got a place for you. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Look, I try and teach my kids on a regular basis that, you know, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And I know it's a cliche, but you know, we don't always have the, everything we do isn't the most glamorous aspect of what we do, but I think you have to do it right. And I think the kind of lesson for me is that, you know, um, you know, you don't always have to get immediate recognition for what you do, right? Life is not about immediate recognition. Life is not about, you know, I know it's again, another cliche, it's kind of, it's what you do when people aren't looking that almost counts more than what you do when people are looking. But if you have faith in what you're doing, if you if you strongly believe that what you're doing and you and you put your best of yourself into things, good things will ultimately happen. Maybe they don't happen that day or that week or that month. But if you continue to put your best foot forward, if you continue to kind of uh, do your best job, then then good things will ultimately happen. And that's kind of the lesson that I kind of took away from that, which is again just keep powering forward. And and even you know when we look at the story with Estendio, you know it's not always as I mentioned before being on that up and up, right? You have difficult times, you have challenging times. But again, you know, for me, it's always about uh, just keep moving forward and keep doing the right things and eventually things move in the right direction. Agreed. Agreed. All right. So Grant, you you may have alluded to this a little bit in a previous answer, but I'll, I'll ask it nonetheless. So when you retire, what are you going to be doing? Traveling, I think. Uh, I mean, as I said, Earlier on, right, I, I'm sure there's always going to be some sort of pet project um, that I'll be involved in. But the great thing, and you know, look, you know, the pandemic and the fact that we're all working from home now is going to just make this easier. You know, our friends that kind of travel around and they still work. So for me, the world is such an amazing place, and and I've been very fortunate to be able to travel uh, reasonably extensively. Extensively, you know, I've spent you know, a lot of time in Europe. You know, a lot of time in South America, time in Africa. Um, and all that's done actually is make me want to travel even more. And so, yeah, I think uh, my wife and I talk a lot about the idea of that, you know, 
trying to create the kind of type of life where you have that kind of freedom to basically up roots and let's you know i'd love to go and just live in paris for a month right uh going you know go to the south of france go to rome you know go to Cambodia, right um there's so many great places in the world to go and spend some time but i think doing it in conjunction with you know again having something uh, involved in that you can participate and get back on right and I, I, i'm not talking about the charitable part as well i'm talking about um mentoring or, or providing feedback or, or as i mentioned about facilitating financing etc i think there's lots of roles that you can perform in that remote uh, situation and get the the flexibility of the traveling as well and you know but that's why hopefully my kids are a little bit older and independent as well we get the opportunity to do it oh that's good stuff Wow. So Grant, we've we've come to the end of our time together. But before we go, what is the best way for people to get in contact with you? Sure. I mean, obviously, um, people can see more about Stendi on our website. Uh, but again, if people want to uh, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, just you know, send me a message if they want to email me. Uh, again, I'm happy for you to email me personally. It's uh, gla at stendio.com. Or you know, tweet at me. Uh, um, you can find our uh, Twitter address. Uh, I think you know I've, I've got my own one, which is Buddy's Fan. Or we've got a Stenio CEO that you can tweet at as well. So uh, lots of different ways to get hold. If, if people are um, don't have enough going on in their life and they feel that they need to reach out, I'm more than happy to chat and, and, and talk with anyone. All right, great. And so Grant, we will definitely put those different ways of connecting with you in the show notes. But thank you so much. Grant for really everything, the insights, you know, the transparency, risk management, and and the deep dive into that, what it's like to go through a Series A, and you you've just shared so much, and we greatly appreciate it. Well, and thank you to you, Sean. I think you know you you create a great platform here, as I've, I know I've mentioned before. It's, it's it's wonderful to be invited back and uh, get a second go around at this. But having listened to. Uh, many of the other episodes you've done, I mean, you've you've managed to pull together a real cast of some really interesting people in, in, in this space. I enjoy listening to it, enjoy the questioning that you provide as well. So thank you for, I know you did this in a, as a volunteer capacity. Thank you for uh, um, the, the amount of work and administration and, and, and effort you've been to it. I know it's well received. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, my friend. You're welcome. And don't be surprised when I reach out for a third time. So, uh, you know, we'll... We'll do that at some point in the future soon. Uh, as your listeners have surely realized by now, there's, the, there's no shortage of conversation I can give. So. Oh, that's, that's true. And I, and I love having them with you, Grant. And so Tecame Presents family, with that, thank you as always for listening. And be sure to tune in next time when we will have another technology expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to another episode of Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends. And thanks for being a part of the Tech and Main Presents community.